Father, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening as we come to the end of John's Gospel and to the end or almost the end of the mission that you sent your divine son on to fulfill. Help us then to pick up that mission and understand it to bring others into the fold through our actions, our speech, and our prayers. So give us the strength and the grace tonight to kind of open our minds and our hearts to what you want us to hear and believe and understand through this study. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Tonight is chapter 19, probably the, you might say, the climax of the mission to which the Father sent the Son on to complete. When we get into the resurrection, it's almost anticlimactic uh, because the main reason for Christ coming to this earth was to fulfill the act of sacred offering that mankind could not do. There was no human being that was worthy enough or had any way to offer something to the divine God who made us all. And that's one thing I really want you to kind of understand. So many people over the years have told me that they don't understand why Christ had to die such a horrible death. And couldn't he have done it in some other way? And so forth. But those kind of questions, if you think about it, are the same kinds of things that Peter tried to argue, in a way, with Christ about. Uh, earlier in the Gospel, there's a... Uh, a passage that talks about Christ beginning to reveal to the apostles that he would eventually have to suffer and die at the hands of the Jewish uh, leaders, primarily the Pharisees. And of course, Peter steps right in, you know, oh, God forbid there, dear Lord, that you should do such a thing and so forth. And that's when Christ says, get behind me, Satan. Now, he's not really calling Peter Satan, um, but what he's really saying is, you really don't understand what you're saying, because if you did and meant what you were saying, then you would really be on the side of Satan. And, of course, that obviously wasn't Peter. He was just kind of, uh, you know, mouth going before brain and gear. Um, but when people do not understand why Christ had to come and reveal himself and the Father and then die for us in such a horrible way, uh, they lose out on the great mystery of who Christ was and why he came to earth in the first place. You know, we go through this ceremony every year of Easter, Holy Week and Easter. 
And everybody says, oh, ho-hum, you know, three hours on Good Friday is so long, I don't think I'll bother going. And, oh, the Saturday liturgy is so long with all those baptisms and so forth, I don't want to bother with that. What they're really doing, without realizing it, of course, is kind of poo-pooing the whole idea of Christ's resurrection or, or sacrifice, death and resurrection. Um, because if you really understand, then you would want to be there to reenact these events with everyone else, the community, the body of Christ, and celebrate on Easter Sunday the fact that you sort of went along with him. That's what the whole idea of when you go and... Uh, perform the uh, stations of the cross. You really are reenacting in your own mind and heart, hopefully not just your body, uh, in the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. Okay. Um, so what I want to get at tonight is to help you understand, and if you have questions that you don't understand what you might think is a minor point, Bring it out, because somebody else might uh, be really festering on the same thing. So keep that in mind as we go through. This, to me, is one of the most poignant parts of John's Gospel. If you know the Gospel well, you'll see that it's all building up to chapter 19. 20 and 21 are, as I said, almost anticlimactic. And they are really the work of the Father uh, and the glory of Christ after the resurrection. So this chapter tonight is when we really discuss the major points of Christ's life. Any questions before we start? Yes, Nick. I got a couple of minor questions. Top of page 96. It almost has to be a typo. Standing by the cross of Jesus with his mother and his mother's sister, Mary. Well. Are two Marys in the same family? But you're taking the word sister literally as we mean it today. In that culture, in that culture, close neighbors, friends, and relatives. And of course, Mary was a very common name, or the equivalent, Miriam. You remember Moses' sister's name was Miriam also. Yeah, That's right, Mary Magdalene as well. Right, I took it too literally. You took it too literally, yes. Mary, uh, the mother of God. Right. Mary, the wife of Clopas. And Mary Magdalene. And the mother and the mother sister is full. Yes. Yeah, that would have, that would appear appear to be full of people. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's right. In fact, just as a side note on that 
Steve just said that when the Bible was written, there were no commas. Uh, somebody way back in the 14th, 13th or 14th century decided to write a Bible as he thought it should be written, the Word of God. And so he wrote the Bible longhand, of course, because the printing press hadn't been developed at that time, with no spaces, no commas of any kind between one word and the next, because it was the word, singular, of God. Could you imagine how difficult that would be and how many similar problems you would have in trying to figure it out? To make matters worse, when you translate from certain languages into English, many languages, particularly the Romance languages, Spanish, Italian, and French, have the subject matter, and particularly in personal pronouns, understood in the verb. We in English do not have that. So when you translate, that's why you have so many hymns and he's in the same sentence, and you have to start figuring out which is him and which is he, you know, uh, because it really makes a difference in the meaning of the sentence. And you would think that when the Bible was translated, that people would take that into consideration, and yet they felt that that was an adulteration of the sacred words and sacred liturgy. Not when you're translating and you're trying to get the meaning as well as the exact interpretation. Um, it would have been much easier for people to understand if they had repeated the personal pronoun or the person's name so that you could understand who was talking. But you can often have two hymns and a he or his in the same sentence, and it can be very confusing. Okay. Yes, Maria? All right, that's a, that's a good point. Bill just asked, why did God require a human sacrifice? It is really to make reparation for human sin. Now, the idea of blood sacrifice, and that is what we're really talking about, blood sacrifice, is common to many, many cultures, even primitive cultures. The Aztecs and the Incas did human sacrifice. Even Indians, the North American Indians, uh, didn't you do human sacrifice that I'm aware of, but they did do blood sacrifice. Uh, they would cut their wrist and do blood-brother relationships and that kind of thing. So blood sacrifice is not unusual. And in this particular culture, the Jewish, the primitive or the original Jewish culture, that was the way it was originally intended. Uh, remember the idea of blood being used from the, the sacrificial lamb and the blood was used to paint the doorpost and the lintels to identify the Jewish or the Israelite families at the time of Moses and the release of them by the Pharaoh from Egypt. So the idea of blood was important. Okay. Now, in this case, 
that we are about to study. The idea of Christ's blood being shed was the ultimate way of showing the Father's love for mankind in spite of his sin, collectively, his sin. Not just man, but women, children, etc. Collectively, his sin. All right. So, and many people have said, well, why did he have to die, you know, on the cross in such a horrible way? That was at the time considered the worst form of death possible. And I suppose it still would be if we thought about it. Uh, and so, the idea of that kind of death was God the Father saying, I have gone to the ultimate death to show the ultimate love. Well, yes, but you have to consider the 40 lashes with all kinds of whips before that. You see, the passion, death, and resurrection is all one unit, not three events. And they cannot be celebrated separately, one without the other. If anyone is missing, it is not uh, official. Okay. Uh, but the idea of, and, and you're right, in some, you know, like the two thieves that were crucified on each side, that's why their legs were broken, to hasten the death. Uh, because of it being the evening of the Passover. All right. In Christ's case, because of the torment and the treatment that he received for 24 hours before, or almost 24 hours before, that hastened the death. Okay. And so his legs were not broken, which fulfills uh, the prophecy of Psalm 20, uh, 34. All right. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes. Yes. And what you may not know is in more modern times, we've had other saints crucified. For example, St. Peter was crucified. But in the 14th century, you had some Asian monks were also cru crucified uh, in more, more of a mockery of what they were professing. Right? Uh, but nevertheless, they were crucified, and it was not—it uh, was not an uncommon thing. Constantine, in the fourth century, uh, stopped all forms of crucifixion. Remember, there were perse persecutions uh, existing from uh, the middle of the first century to and up until the beginning of the 4th century when the Edict of Milan was signed by Constantine in Milan at the, uh, in 313 AD, which changed the world. Constantine was the person who shifted the um, Sabbath that even the Christians observed from 
Saturday to Sunday morning in honor of the resurrection and Pentecost. Uh, he was the one that stopped and forbid crucifixion of any kind throughout the Roman Empire. And he did a number of other things that the church has benefited from and a number of things that the church has suffered for. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, we have to look at the good and try to overcome the bad. Yes, Norm? That's right. As Norm just said, no one can placate God, so God had to placate himself, and meaning that no one could offer a sacrifice that was of a divine level, because none of us are there yet. I'm trying, but none of us are there yet. Um, and so God had to be that divine sacrifice himself in the form of Jesus Christ. It's so important that you understand because to not understand or worse, to not care to understand leaves you out in the cold when it comes to really appreciating the liturgies of Holy Week and Easter. All right. So that's what we're trying to get across in our studies tonight. Okay. Any other questions before we get in? Jose? Yes, yes. Jose's question was, could there have been more than those three people crucified that day? And the answer, of course, is yes. Um, there were times when crucifixions were uh, done in mass so that they actually had racks that were uh, put up for this purpose. And, you know, it was horrible. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian of this time, later first century, uh, talks about the persecutions that were carried on by the uh, Pharisees, uh, the Jewish rulers against the Christians, to the point where the water of the Sea of Galilee actually turned blood red from the sacrifices of Christians dumped into the lake. Now, this is a person who was a Jewish person, but he didn't really practice his faith. He just wrote about it. All right. And it's, uh, it's an interesting book, but believe me, uh, it's not one that you care to uh, sit up all night and read. Yes. I thought they weren't allowed to kill. Oh, what difference does that make? <laughs> oh well, we'll get into we'll get into that. I mean, that's a that is. Uh, all right, we'll, we'll get into that story. But like I said, what difference does that make? All right. Any other questions? All right. Now. Usually, I would prefer that we keep questions to the end, but this is such an important uh, chapter. So if you have questions on something you don't understand, but it has to be on this chapter, all right? So, page 92. 
Remember last week, we talked about the interrogation by Pilate of Christ that got nowhere. Uh, and so Pilate tried to placate the Jewish people by offering Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist and, you know, a, a ne'er-do-well, you might say, who was already in prison and they wanted just, he wanted to just offer him as something to uh, get rid of the whole matter. Pilate was not a weak uh, person. He tried to do things only to suit himself. All right. He was ruthless in many ways. Josephus said that he was extremely ruthless. All right. But in this case, there must have been something that he saw in Christ that made him concerned about putting this man to death. And yet in the long run, he figured he better keep his job and uh, do what they wanted. Yes, what Dick is referring to is where the wife of Pilate comes to him and says, uh, don't, as Dick just said, don't do anything with this guy because she had a dream that night that left her uh, very disturbed uh, about Jesus and felt that it was better that Pilate let him go. Well, Pilate didn't pay any attention to her and eventually gave in uh, to the pressure. Let's go on and get into that. After Jesus was sent out to be scourged, remember scourging in Roman tradition was 40 lashes, less one. I don't know the reason for the less one, but that's it. They felt that if it went 40 or more, the person would be killed before he was or she was um, administered any other form of punishment. And therefore, uh, it was limited to 40 plus or minus one. If you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, you could actually hear the soldiers as they administered the whips. They are counting in Latin. And uh, it's interesting to hear that because in the background, while other scenes are going on in the foreground, in other words, uh, there's the one scene where Jesus' mother tries to keep up with him as he goes down the Via Dolorosa with the cross. And she has to go uh, sort of through uh, a back alley in order to get around the crowd. And yet you can hear in the background, unos, duo, tre, cuatro, cinque, sei, sette, otto, nove, etc. Okay. I'm mixing a little Spanish and Latin together. I know that. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's go on. So now, after the scourging, and you can imagine what a person would look like 
after he was whipped with the cat of nine tails and all kinds of instruments for 39 blows. You know, it wouldn't be a pretty sight. That's why blood was all over. It wasn't confined to the back or any place else. It was all over. Uh, there was a story of, about uh, Jim Caviezel, the fellow that portrayed Christ in the movie Passion of the Christ, said that when he stood for some of those scenes where he was whipped, obviously he had on a uh, plastic uh, mold of his back so that he didn't uh, actually have any of those things strike him directly. But he said a couple times uh, they missed because it only covered his back. And he said it was bloody painful. Yeah. Okay. All right, now, so when Jesus comes back, he has the crown of thorns on his head. He's bloody all over. And he has this purple, purple cloak that was put on him as sort of a mockery by the Roman soldiers. So you can imagine what he looks like. So then Pilate said and took Jesus and had him skirts. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and placed it on his head and clothed him in a purple cloak. And they came to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him repeatedly. Once more Pilate went out and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. That's the second time. The first time he said that was in chapter 18. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple cloak. And Pilate said to them, here's one of those, he said, you don't know whether it was Pilate or Jesus said, obviously in this case it's Pilate, said to them, behold the man, ecce homo. When the priest, when the chief priest and the guards saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. Third time. The Jews answered, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be God. And that, of course, <laughs> That is true in the Mosaic law. This would be, if this was an ordinary person saying that he was God or the son of God, that would be blaspheming. And according to that, he would have to be put to death. And yet at the same time, the Jewish people, according to Roman law, had no right to put anybody to death. But they did. Nevertheless, one way or the other, being the Son of God. He came back even more afraid and went back into the praetorium. The praetorium is not only the place where he lived, but the more or less the, the Roman guard and station house and so forth uh, in Jerusalem. And said to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus did not answer him. And why did Jesus not answer him? Remember at an earlier story 
in the gospel, I don't remember if it's this one or in Matthew, where the Syrophoenician woman comes and begs God, or begs Jesus, to come and heal her daughter. And Jesus said to her, we don't take pearls and feed them to the dogs. And she said, Master, even the dogs will lick the wounds um, or eat the scraps under the table of, of the master or something like that. In other words, she was willing to take virtually anything. But the words that Jesus used was, we don't take pearls and throw them to the dogs. In other words, words of wisdom is what he's saying. And in this case, Jesus is not going to answer Pilate because he would be giving him words of wisdom. The same kind of thing. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you? And I have the power to crucify you? And Jesus said, Remember, Jesus is always in control. You would have no power over me if it had not been given to you from above. The ultimate idea here is that all power comes from God in one form or another. All goodness comes from God in one way or another. For this reason, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. And of course, he's talking about or at least we think he's think he's talking about Judas. But that isn't perhaps the only person that he's thinking about. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who could have just squashed this whole thing, had they really done some homework, uh, did nothing. And so their guilt is probably far greater than even Judas. Consequently, Pilate tried to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release him, you are not a friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And that, of course, was uh, another Roman law. Can you see the action going back and forth? How Pilate represents Satan and Jesus represents God. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and seated him on the judge's bench in the place called Stone Pavement, in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Not Golgotha, but Gabbatha. It was preparation day for Passover, and it was about noon. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. The ultimate insult, the ultimate betrayal, even worse than Judas. I want to go back in Old Testament history here 
in the book, first book of Samuel. If you want to follow me, fine. If not, just listen. In the first book of Samuel, before there was any kings in Israel, the people wanted a king because they wanted to be identified as a nation. And up until this time, the surrounding nations or cultures always looked upon these Hebrew people as a tribe, a tribe rather than a nation. And yet there were many uh, hundreds of thousands of people in this so-called tribe. So it was a point of pride that they wanted a king. So they pleaded with Samuel, the high priest, who really was sort of the chief person in Israel at the time, and pleaded that they wanted a king. And Samuel said to them, your God is your king. And they said, no, we want a real human being as a king. And so I want to read from chapter 8 here so that you understand kind of the words that are coming out of John's gospel here later. It says, in his old age, Samuel appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now, judges were various people that uh, sort of governed the, the large tribe of uh, Israelites at the time. And uh, that was a habit that God had uh, set up long before this time. His firstborn was named Joel. His second son, Abijah. They judged at Beersheba. His sons did not follow his example, but sought uh, illicit gain and accepted bribes. Hmm, sounds familiar. Perverting justice. And therefore, all the elders of Israel came in a body to Samuel. <coughs> all the elders of Israel came to, <coughs> in a body to Samuel at Ramah and said, Now that you are old and your sons do not follow your example, Appoint a king over us, as other nations have, to judge us. Samuel was displeased when they asked for a king to judge them. He prayed to the Lord, however, who said in answer, Grant the people's every request. It is not you they reject. They are rejecting me as their king. As they have treated me constantly from the day I brought them up from Egypt to this day, deserting me and worshipping strange gods, so do so do they th uh, treat you too. Now, grant their request, but at the same time, warn them solemnly and inform them of the rights of the king who will rule over them. Samuel delivered the message of the Lord in full to those who were asking him for a king. He told them, the rights of the king who will rule over you will be as follows. And then he goes down and talks about all of the things that they will have to endure by having a king. And they say at the end, <clears throat> when this takes place, you will complain against the king whom you have chosen. But on that day, the Lord will not answer you. The people, however, refused to listen to Samuel's warning and said, not so. There must be a king over us. We too must be like other nations with a king to rule us and to lead us in warfare and 
fight our battles. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, it's no point. I don't need to read more. In other words, the idea of appointing a king was extremely important to them. And I'm talking about a human being as a king. So the first king they they uh, anointed was Saul, not having anything to do with St. Paul, but Saul. Well, he ruled for nearly 40 years, and he was, you know, he had his problems, and finally he uh, he just turned out to be a bad choice. So then they anointed David under God's guidance and so forth. And, of course, we all know that David turned out uh, to be one of the greatest uh, kings of the Jewish nation, even in spite of his own problems. Okay. So this went on, and right down to the Babylonian captivity, there were over 50 kings in both the north and the south combined, almost all of them uh, evil men. It just seemed to get worse. Uh, David was pretty good. That was the, the glory, the epitome of the Jewish monarchy. His son Solomon started out fine, uh, but then things went to his head, and towards the end of his 40 years, uh, things started falling apart. His son uh, was even worse and split the kingdom into two parts, uh, with a, a friend ruling the north and the son of Solomon ru ruling the south. And it just went downhill from there. Okay, So, and then of course that's what led to the Babylonian exile. So now, after the Babylonian exile, there wasn't any king of real authority. There was a few figureheads like Herod. And, of course, when we talk about Herod, there was actually seven Herods, all right? They didn't all go by the name of Herod, but there was <coughs> Herod the Great that started actually before Christ was born. Uh, then there was Herod Agrippa, Herod Antipas, and his three sons, and grandson and great-grandson, okay? So we have a, a number of Herods, so be careful when you read the word Herod as to which one we're talking about. Right? So this idea of saying the Jewish people, particularly the Pharisees, saying to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar, is sort of undoing everything that they wanted and all the good that they had stood for in the past, and they are again rejecting God. Rather than praying to God for guidance and protection in this matter, uh, they're rejecting God altogether. And, of course, that's part of why the Jews have always had to bear the brunt of crucifying Christ. All right. Not that Christ died simply because of the Jews. He died for all mankind but they were the instruments, the primary instruments, because they had rejected God over and over and over so many times that it's almost hard uh, to keep track of, of them all. Okay, And yet, and this is sort of an aside, and yet, in addition to this betrayal here, 
God still gives them 40 years after the death and resurrection of Christ before he finally lowers the boom and withdraws the first covenant from them in the form of destroying the temple and everything in it never to be rebuilt again. After this, after this saying, of course, we have no king but Caesar, then Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. If you took that sentence out of context, you wouldn't know who they were talking about. Then he handed him over to be crucified to them. Okay. The crucifixion of Christ. So they took Jesus. Now, he has been scourged, whipped, spit upon, crowned with thorns, cloaked with purple, and now made to bury, to bury the cross. Carry the cross. Both the Romans, see, the Romans had to do it. Remember, I hope we didn't skip a part here that I was really, well, earlier I think we read <clears throat> where the Jews wanted this all done in a hurry through the Romans because they didn't want it to be defiled by being part of killing anybody because they were going to celebrate the Passover. And yet, I would, you know, what a mockery uh, and a distortion of the rules because what they are doing is killing their own Messiah and are manipulating the Jews in order to get it done. I mean the Romans in order to get it done. So, you know, that you have blasphemy all over the place here. It was the Romans who officially did it. It was the Jews who manipulated the Romans into doing it. Okay? I lost my place. Okay, yes, thank you. And so they took Jesus and carried him carrying the cross himself. Now, John makes a point of saying he carried the cross himself, and there's no mention of Simon of Cyrene being forced to help. Remember, in most cases, the cross was not, you know, like we see it, like that shape up there, uh, with the crossbar and the staff. It was just generally a log to which the criminal was crucified to, nailed to. And then this log was hoisted up on a permanent uh, tree that had been cut out and stuck there. Well, there's a lot of debate as to whether the cross that Christ carried was just the lintel or was it the cross that we think of today. Remember, it was not a nice piece of wood that came from Home Depot. Well, in most cases, it was just a tree that was 
used for this purpose over and over and over again. Christ wasn't the only one uh, and the first one to use this piece of wood. We don't know for sure. You know, St. Helena, the mother of Constantine, took a whole uh, entourage of people to Israel to try to locate the true cross. And after a lot of searching, because now crucifixion had been abolished by her son, and so there were crosses strewn all around, uh, nobody would touch them because they were instruments of death. So they were just kind of dumped around. And she, according to tradition and legend, she found the true cross. And the way she could identify one from the other was that she had a very ill uh, servant with her who was about to die uh, because of whatever this illness was. And she prayed that God would in some way help her to identify the true cross. And they came upon a pile of crosses, and she had this ill servant help her search these crosses. And all of a sudden, at one point in time, he finds, or she finds, I don't remember whether it was a man or a woman, and she becomes remarkably well, but not completely. So they continued the search, and they come upon another one, and upon touching it, the servant was completely restored to health. Now, this is legend. Now, don't quote me, you know, verbatim, especially with the bad grammar. Okay. Uh, if you're going to quote me, make sure the grammar is right. Okay. Uh, now, I've seen that true cross, and the inscription that has the INRA, the uh, inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Uh, I've actually seen that, and the crown of thorns, um, and the, some of the nails that Christ were crucified. All of these were brought back by St. Helena, from Israel to Rome, and they are in a church uh, that's sort of off the beaten path, and it's called the Church of uh, the Holy Cross from Jerusalem. He is a Della Croce uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, and anyone can go there and see it, but it is not on the, the usual tourist uh, route, and you have to kind of know where it is. It's halfway between the train station and St. Mary Major's, and there will be a Franciscan monk, monk who will be at the door of the inner chapel where these relics are located, and you can go in by, with permission and see these relics. And anybody that goes to Rome, I would certainly recommend that you do that. Okay. Now, we got off a little bit off of the track here, but let's go on. <clears throat> Simon of Serene is not mentioned here. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, uh, it shows the two thieves holding just the crossbar and being nailed and tied. The arms are tied because 
nails alone would not hold the body, or the weight of a body. And so they were generally tied as well as nailed. Nailed so that they wouldn't come loose and be used as weapons. Uh, so they were also tied because, as I said, nails would not hold a human body uh, for very long. Okay. Uh, but in that movie, as I said, the two thieves had just the crossbar, but Christ had the full cross as we think of it today. And at one point in time, after he's fallen the third time, when he picks the cross up, you can almost see him embrace the cross because he knows that that is the instrument not only of his death, but in the uh, mission that he is on, it will be the sign forever, recognizing what he is accomplishing that day. So it's just a momentary thing, but you can see the embrace of Christ and that cross. It is, it is, well, very moving. Carrying the cross himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross, and it read, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Now, many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered in this very John Wayne voice, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four squares, a share for each soldier. They also took his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top down. And so they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see those, to see who it will be in order that the passage of Scripture might be fulfilled. That says, in other words, John is adding that. Obviously, the soldiers weren't saying that. Okay. Now, how many of you read chapter, uh, Psalm 22 that I've asked you to read? Well, good, most of you, but not all. I'd like to go and read that, if you would. If you turn your Bibles to... Psalm 22. Now, this is not in John's Gospel, but I want to bring it out anyways, uh, because it plays an important part in what we know as the Good Friday liturgy. Okay? And so many people have asked me about this. 
forgetting or not knowing what Psalm 22 is all about. It starts out with the words that Jesus cries out from the cross. Now, Jesus, remember, is a human being. He has suffered this as a human being. He is also God. But remember also, he has never used his divine powers for himself. He's never made his life easier or softer or better in any way, shape, or form just for himself. And that goes for this time period as well. He has never made his suffering less suffering uh, because he was God. And so from the cross he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my prayer, from the words of my mouth. Oh my God, I cry out by day and you answered not. By night and there is no relief for me. Remember this psalm was written at least 200 years before Christ and possibly much longer. Yet you are enthroned in the holy place, O glory of Israel, and you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they escaped. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. The scorn of many. In other words, he's being treated as a worm or, you know, an animal or whatever. Not a man. The scorn of men despised by the people. All who see me scoff at me. They mock me with parted lips. They wag their heads. He relied on the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he loves him. Now see, that sentence alone has all those hymns and so forth. If they reworded that to put in the personal pronouns, it would be Jesus relied on God. So let Jesus, or let God deliver Jesus. Let God rescue him if he loves Jesus. So, you see, you've got to be careful as to where the personal pronouns fit. You have been my guide since I was first formed, my security at my mother's breast. To you I was committed at birth. From my mother's womb, you are my God. Be not far from me, for I am in distress. Be near, for I have no one to help me. Many bullocks surround me. The strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me like ravening and roaring lions. I am like water poured out. All my bones are racked. My heart has become like wax, melting away within my bosom. My throat is dried up like baked clay. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, to the dust of death you have brought me down. Indeed, many dogs surround me. A pack of evildoers closes in upon me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look on and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them 
and for my vesture they cast lots. Words we just read out of John's Gospel. But you, O Lord, be not far from me. O my help, hasten to aid me. Rescue my soul from the sword, my loneliness from the grip of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild bulls, my wretched life. Now, the victory song. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, give glory to him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not spurned nor disdained the wretched man in his misery, nor did he turn his face away from him. But when he cried out, he heard him. And so my gift will be, I will utter praise in the vast assembly. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear him. The lowly shall eat their fill, for they shall seek the Lord, for those who seek the Lord shall praise him. And may your hearts be ever merry. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall bow down before him. For dominion is the Lord's, and he rules the nation. To him alone shall bow down all who sleep in the earth. Before him shall bend all who go down into the dust. And to him my soul shall live. My descendants shall serve him. Let the coming generation be told of the Lord that they may proclaim to the people yet to be born the justice he has shown. Excuse me, but I get a little wrapped up when I uh, read that. Going back over to John now, it says, They divided my garments, and among them they cast my vesture, for my vesture they cast lots. <clears throat> this is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there whom he loved, no doubt that is John himself, John never mentions himself by name in his gospel. He said to his mother, that is, Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took him, took her into his home. And so tradition tells us that John, the evangelist, the apostle, was the only apostle who was not martyred. Part of that was probably because he was the one who took care of Mary, Jesus' mother, until she was taken into heaven. And the other part of that is it took many, many years to come to the understanding of Christ's life and what it all meant for him to write this gospel. And that's why this was written towards the end of the first century. 
along with the book of Revelation, which you might say, in a way, is a continuation of this gospel, in such that Revelation is how we should think of Jesus from heaven, looking down and trying to sort out what is going on in that 40 years from the time of Christ's resurrection and ascension rather, until the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. And then giving hope by what will be our future when we look to the final end of the world. Revelation is not the spooky thing that so many people try to make it out to be. It is actually a book of hope. It talks about the problems that existed from the time of Christ's ascension and after Pentecost Sunday for 40 years up until 70 AD. Okay, That proverbial or uh, biblical 40 years, although this is pretty much an accurate number. And then it talks about the persecutions during that time and how mankind at that time, as well as today, should look towards our final ending and being with God in heaven. So it's kind of divided into two time periods. It is not what most people make it out to be. And there's good reason, uh, and there's plenty of support to back that up. Let's go on. After this, aware that everything was now finished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. Now that can be interpreted a couple different ways. In the ordinary human element, obviously after being scourged and spit upon and crowned with thorns and mocked and uh, dragged back and forth between Pilate and uh, all of those various places. Remember, Herod is not mentioned in here, but he is in the other Gospels. Uh, Jesus was probably never fed, you know, he wasn't taken there. <laughs> any place and given a nice meal, you know, like they do prisoners and criminals today before they execute him. Um, so being human, obviously, he would thirst. So they, so they give him this wine on a hyssop stick and let him drink from that. But there's another way of looking at that. In the spiritual, he's thirsting for mankind to come and believe in him and accept him as their Lord and Savior. So whenever you hear the a real good preacher talk about the seven last words of Christ on the cross, John only mentions three of them, but there's always been, according to tradition, seven famous statements made on the cross, and one of them is, I thirst, and the, a real good theologian will divide that into two parts. The way that I just mentioned 
of looking at it from the human point of being thirsty and from the spiritual point in a theological sense of thirsting for mankind to accept what he is doing. There was a vessel filled with common wine and so they put a sponge soaked in wine on a sprig of hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus had taken the wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he handed over the spirit. As we said before, in the Jewish Seder, it is finished is the last words of the Seder, meaning the Seder ceremony is over. And the idea here is that Jesus is now saying his mission is over. The whole reason for the Seder in the first place, because the Seder comes out of God's delivering mankind from physical bondage in Egypt. That's the celebration in back of the Seder. In this case, we are commemorating Jesus delivering mankind's bondage from sin. Okay, and the consequences of all of our sins. <coughs> now, since it was preparation day, meaning the day that was being prepared as the Passover, in order that the bodies might not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath day that week was a solemn one, being Passover. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs be broken and that they be taken down. That was a common thing to hasten death uh, for any criminal crucified when they kind of wanted to get it over with. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and then the other who was crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one soldier thrust his lance into his side, and immediately blood and water flowed out. An eyewitness has testified, and his testimony is true. He knows that he is speaking the truth, so that you also may come to believe. And this, of course, is presumed to, to be John himself. For this happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone of his will be broken. That comes from Psalm 34. And again, another passage says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And that's from the prophet Zechariah. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, secretly a disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate if he could remove the body of Jesus. And Pilate permitted it. So he came and took his body. Nicodemus, the one who had first come uh, to Jesus at night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about a 100 pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it with its burial cloths. Now, I'm going to stop there for a minute. If these guys were truly disciples of Christ, why would they come secretly, in other words,
words, why would they keep it hidden? You might think, oh, gee, these are nice guys. They come, you know, they come by and they take the body down and they bury it and they bring all of Sure, that's, that is, you know, a good deed. But isn't it like a lot of Catholics today who will do things secretly or, you know, without telling anybody, but when they get into public, they won't stand up for what they believe in? Yeah, they protect their behinds, really. Yes. Yes. Uh, and so we today are just as guilty of doing the same thing if we don't stick up for what we believe in. And therefore, think about it. These people aren't as good as they are reported to be, or as we casually might think they are. They're doing a good deed, yes, but secretly, you know. So you got to kind of think of, are we proud of our heritage, our Christian Catholic heritage, enough to stand up and let people know? Now, I don't mean that you have to go and get on a soapbox and brag about it, but you do have to defend your faith when you are challenged in any way, shape, or form. Christianity, Catholicism particularly, is not something that you could put on and take off for your convenience. If you are truly a Catholic, you are always a Catholic. And you should stand up for it. If you are truly a Christian, you are always a Christian and should stand up for it and not be afraid to acknowledge it. I've gone out to dinner with people and, you know, immediately they'll start, particularly in restaurants, they'll start eating their dinner. And I say, well, aren't we going to pray for a moment and give thanks to God? Oh, well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, they hide behind the menu or, or whatever they can because, you know, that's something you just don't do in public. Why not? Why not? Think about it. The blood and water that issues from the side of Christ. If anyone is familiar with medical terms, once a body dies, there is no pressure. And therefore, if a dead body is pierced, you might get some fluid trickling out, but it doesn't gush out. In this way, we are sort of led to believe that blood and water gushes out as a symbol of the Holy Spirit being shed on mankind. Now, that is only a symbolic thought. <clears throat> Again, I lost my place. Yes, all right. After this, yes, Joseph and Arimathea, we already talked about that part. They took the body down. <clears throat> they took the body of Jesus and bound it in burial cloths, along with spices according to the Jewish burial custom. 
Now in the place where he had been crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been buried. And so they laid Jesus there because of the Jewish preparation day where the tomb was close at hand or close by. And then traditionally, they will uh, roll a very large stone over the entrance. There is a picture in here that shows that. I don't know if you can see it. I'll leave it open so that everyone can take, take a look at it and come by and see it later if you wish. And many of these are still um, still around in Jerusalem now, more or less as tourist sites, uh, because they don't bury people like that any longer. But uh, they've kept some of those uh, for people to look and see how people were buried back in that time frame. Yes, Craig? Well, uh, first of all, things weren't measured in pounds in those days, you know. So the 100 pounds is sort of a, a guess. But yes, remember, they, they didn't embalm bodies in those days in Jewish culture. Now, in Egypt, they did. But part of that is why the Jewish people didn't do it because they tried to avoid a lot of Egyptian customs. And even today, many Jewish people will not embalm their dead, uh, except places where it is uh, required by law. Okay, uh, But they do bury them within 24 hours, and that still goes today. Yes, and in those days, because they didn't embalm them, and, you know, the odor and all of that, so by putting these various spices, and of course that's what myrrh is, an embalming spice. Uh, you know, the three kings, one brought myrrh, uh, that's an embalming spice, and that was used. But as far as the weight, yes, it would be a lot, but 100 pounds, well, as you said the right thing the first. The first thing was the right thing. I am a Catholic, all right? And it depends on circumstances. What are they asking you or what are they trying to give you? What is your situation? Do you have the time to talk to them? Uh, you might just say, I'm sorry, I would like to talk to you, but I'm in a hurry for whatever reason, and go on. Uh, but you said the right thing first. That's important. You just put it out there. Uh, and that covers it. I wouldn't worry after that. I was just always taking the material offer. I do too. So I do too. Uh, well, not only. <laughs> You're right. But the thing is, even though they may be totally wrong, you got to respect their zeal. And so whenever somebody comes to my door, I'll accept what they give me and say, thank you, I'll read it when I have time. 
or if I have time. And, uh, you know, and one time I would say, well, I, you know, I'm a Catholic and I probably will not accept this, but I respect your zeal. Yes, one time I had a nice young man come to my door in a blistering hot day, and of course he was dressed, you know, in a white shirt and a black tie, and uh, you, you knew, you know, the moment that you opened the door, uh, who he was, um, and he's, you know, he practically leaned on the door, and I'm here from the Seventh-day Adventist, or the Mormons, I forget which, and I said, Young man, you look like you need a drink. So I said, how about some lemonade? Oh, I'd love that. Uh, uh, it changed It changed the whole atmosphere, you see. And I told him, you know, that I was Catholic and probably would not accept uh, all that he had to offer, but uh, at least I wanted to respect him and his zeal in going door to door. And I think that gave him a little bit of lift physically as well as spiritually. Well, you just said the, one of the most important things. Most of these split-off faiths, good as they may be, good intentions as they may have, their theology gets a little muddled, particularly the further away they get from the mother church. And so you got to, as Steve just pointed out, Ask them the same questions that Jesus asked. Um, I guess it was Andrew and uh, Nathaniel and the rest of the apostles. Who do you say that I am? In other words, have them try to admit that Jesus is God. And many of them will have a difficult time in admitting that. All right, it is getting late, but any other questions? I really feel that this is such an important, Lord, we ask your blessing as we really try to struggle through and understand in a personal way the death of Christ, why he came, why he suffered, and why he died for me for each one of you personally. And scripture tells us that if each one of us was the only person on earth, he still would have gone through the same. So help us then to understand and to appreciate the great love that you, Father, have shown us by giving us your Son and accepting him back after such a horrible experience. There's no other word to explain it so well. So we thank you for this time together. We ask our, your blessing on our efforts as we finish this gospel in the next two weeks and then experience the great liturgies and the celebration of Easter. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.